You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. As I have mentioned numerous times of occasion in past episodes, I have been spending the majority of the last few months driving up and down the east coast of Australia to celebrate post-lockdown freedom. The constant change of scenery also doubled up as an ongoing distraction from my existential dread as I drove up the New South Wales-Queensland border and back down again into Tasmania, which often worked but not always. It is hard to escape the human impact on the continent, whether we are talking about the fragmented, burnt and desiccating wilderness areas, the struggling farms and the endless stretches of new housing development along the coastline, selling tasteless shit for astronomical prices that no one can afford. Little reminders like this constantly remind me of the broken system of which we are navigating. Thank you very much, modern society. On the plus side, however, this sojourn has given me lots of opportunities to connect with lots of amazing people doing a lot of amazing things to buck the system. During February, I climbed aboard, or rather drove aboard, the Spirit of Tasmania to spend a month travelling around, you guessed it, Tasmania. I was already familiar with this very fascinating island as I had made the trip from Perth to Hobart many times as a child and young adult to visit family. This trip was substantially different. Um, I didn't fly for a change, (laughs) I took the boat. I was aware that many permaculturists, community game changers, environmentalists and climate change escapees have been crossing the Bass Strait with regularity over the years. But why Tasmania and what are the joys and challenges of starting a sea change in Van Diemen's land? I travelled the island meeting so many different people doing so many different things. The generosity was amazing. People let me into their home. They showed me their permaculture properties. They gave me a tour of their community hubs where they volunteer. They even fed and caffeinated me on many occasions. Not knowing me from a bar of soap, so many gave up their busy lives to talk with me and in many cases allow the microphone and the record button to be pointed in their general directions. There's something to be said about Tasmanian hospitality that is contagious. Tanya Brooks was one of the incredible people who said yes for an interview. Tanya is a Maori-born Indigenous woman who made the journey from Melbourne some years ago to escape the suburban rat race and to make a new start with her husband in Davenport, northwest Tasmania, built around the ethics of community, care and reciprocity. She's heavily involved with the Reseed Centre in Penguin and struck me as a one-woman powerhouse for the permaculture community in northwest Tasmania. I had the amazing opportunity to interview Tanya at her home in Davenport. She shares with us her decision for moving to Tasmania and gives an insider's insight into the flourishing permaculture movements in the community-orientated northwest coast. This being PGAP, we then go deeper and meta, exploring the importance of community, environmentalism, society, Indigenous values and connection to land, and even spirituality. After Tanya's interview, I will play a song by Tasmanian-born artist Claire Ann Taylor, who grew up in the Tarkeen region. Tanya is a huge fan of Claire's music and played to me the track My Mother, The Mountain, when I visited her for the interview, which I instantly fell in love with. 
With Claire's very kind permission, I'll play this song after Tanya's interview, which I believe is a perfect expression of connection to country. Enjoy. Tanya, how are you today? I'm fabulous. Thank you very much for asking and thank you for having me along. Let's start with an incredibly broad question to see how this goes. Yourself and your background and perhaps where you brought up and what's led you to this point and what you're passionate about, any of the above. Wow, big, lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I live here in Tulaminakali, which is the Mersey River, Devonport, Tasmania, uh, home of the Palawapakana people here in Lutruwita. Tasmania. As an Indigenous woman myself, I am Māori from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, it is indeed my privilege to be able to live on this land and to be able to appreciate every day um, the magnificent landscape. To just uh, be really grateful for the time and the energy and um, the love that the Indigenous people of this land um, have given to this place for tens of thousands of years, which has enabled um, us today to be able to live here in awe, in safety and in an amazing environment where there is still um, a rawness in the place, um, a wildness, more importantly, an abundance in terms of resource and community and to just have um, the privilege to live in a place that in many parts is still indicative of ancient Gondwana land. I guess being a Māori woman, um, having grown up uh, in New Zealand, I myself um, have a, a deep understanding and connection with the place where my ancestors are from. As an Indigenous person, you do have um, a, a connection with other Indigenous people. Indigenous solidarity is uh, very much a thing. To that extent, I'm automatically drawn to the Indigenous people of this place. So I have many friends who are uh, Indigenous people in Tasmania. And also just to be able to learn um, about the landscape that you're living in um, from the people whose ancestors have um, enabled uh, this place to continue for as long as it has. When I'm reflecting on my life here, I'm very much a guest uh, on this land and I do take the responsibility of caring for the land that I live on and the waterways and being an active contributor to that can manifest in many different ways, whether it's uh, attending and supporting cultural events that are, are run by Aboriginal people or whether that's um, through environmental activism, um, standing up for the wild places. My Indigenous um, heritage still very much is a central part of, of my life and and my being. And even though um, I'm unable to live in my homeland, um, I can still actively live out 
my cultural values and um, share my worldview and the universal um, Indigenous worldview with others. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, um, you know, haven't been in Tasmania long enough to see all the wonderful, fantastic things you do. Mm. I have had the utter joy um, of seeing the Reseed Centre and you gave uh, me a little tour there. Um, would you like to describe a little bit more about what the Reed Seed Centre is about and what it does and how that supports community and what makes it different and, and your own involvement there? The Reseed Centre is based in Penguin on the northwest coast of Lutruwita. It's fundamentally a centre for education um, around sustainable living. It's a multifaceted centre that incorporates community hubs and activities and workshops, but it is also a space for um, individuals to live. So there are a number of tenancies that operate there. It has been designed around permaculture principles um, and a lot of the people that are either involved with the trust in, in terms of ownership or uh, are practitioners there generally align with permaculture um, ethics and principles and it sort of underpins a lot of the activities that um, go on there. More specifically things that I'm involved with at the Reseed Centre are um, the establishment of the uh, seed bank that operates out of there. Um, so there's an informal seed savers network we run introduction to permaculture courses there. We're hoping to run a PDC next year. A lot of them around food growing and um, around how to just live more sustainably generally, whether that's in zero waste living or other more sort of esoteric views uh, or, or topics. Um, they run a lot of film nights there. Yeah, it's a, it's a multifaceted um, centre and it's always evolving. It's very much a community space that's led by the community. Um, it's not like a lot of commercial operations where um, everything is centred around the profit. Um, everything that happens there is very much for the community, by the community. And what so impressed me for the Reseed community is, you know, coming into Penguin and it doesn't, look on the surface like um, it looks like a lovely place for sure but it's not screaming look at me I'm alternative or permaculture like somewhere like Mullumbimby would mm -hmm. and yet you turn around a corner and there is the reseed just just doing what it's doing mm -hmm. you know not waving at flags necessarily saying mm -hmm. look at me look at me would you say that's kind of representative of the let's say, the progressive or the permaculture or the um, localised community, whatever one wants to call it, in um, northwestern Tasmania, is it generally or is there something you can put on the pulse of um, how community kind of works in northwestern Tasmania? The Reseed Centre aside, there is a very strong sense of community all throughout Tasmania. The further away from Hobart you go, the, the stronger it gets. Um, and that's been my personal observation, but it's also been the observation of other friends and colleagues um, that I've spoken with. And you do tend to find that in regional communities and rural communities, um, 
where you do have those fewer numbers of people, the relationships often um, have more opportunity to flourish. When you're living in smaller places, they can very quickly um, become a little bit uh, insular, <laughs> people living in silos, but um, there is just a stronger sense of community more broadly here in Tasmania. And on the mainland, people often refer to Tasmania as being uh, quite a backward place. Um, it is actually, in my opinion, um, one of the things that endears itself to people. It's the fact that it still is quite old-fashioned. Um, the people are still, you know, there are lots of progressives, of course, and we're very much a mixed bag. There's been a strong retention of that community culture that's come through the generations here. And I think that that's probably simply to do with the uh, population uh, base, you know, small numbers of people um, living here and um, they're very much spread out across the island. That smaller community living almost um, gives rise to um, better cooperation between people, a stronger sense of working cohesively as a community um, especially as it relates to things like community resilience. Um, and if anything were to, to happen, uh, whether that was an economic shock or anything along those lines, um, Tasmania is, I think, uniquely placed in that the way that society operates here, it very much does lend itself to cooperation because people are very friendly here and they are very willing and, you know, positive about interacting with complete strangers. <laughs> um, people who come here as tourists, as visitors, often comment on just how friendly people are. People wave out to you, you have no idea who they are, um, and that's just one of the beautiful things about, about living in this place. Um, and again, I think it's very much reflecting the small population base that we have here. I remember as um, a child, even going to Hobart and visiting my grandparents, like there'd be people coming in and out all the time and everyone seemed to know each other, even in a city. And I remember taking a tour on the Derwent and, you know, a relative, a friend came to see the guy running the boat for the punnets of raspberries that they'd just grown. So I noticed like so much that just that difference of um, people interacting with each other on the um, microcosm then that is true in these days that people are leaving the metropolises in their droves looking for greener pastures and you know, it tends to be either the northern rivers or, or Tasmania for those wanting to escape climate change. Um, I'm curious um, what was it about Tasmania? Was it a decision for you to move to Tasmania or was it um, circumstance that I think you're happy that you made the decision. But. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We um, had, my husband and I, had been coming to Tasmania for uh, about eight years before we decided to move down here. Every time we went back to the mainland, there was a real disappointment, I guess you could say, about just how we were living. This real tension between wanting to live a life of voluntary simplicity 
and authenticity and then having to go back to this place that was just not offering anything that was remotely fulfilling. Suburbia um, in its traditional sense and going to work, you know, coming home. We have children doing all of the usual things that come with having children, mum's taxi. Um, my husband at the time was working internationally as well and so was away a fair bit. That sort of left me with, you know, children to manage and a full-time job to manage and a home to manage and there were zero opportunities to become involved in anything to do with the community. Um, a lack of time to, to do much beyond. I mean, I loved raising my children and I loved being involved in their lives and, and doing all of those wonderful things. But often when you don't have the opportunity to connect with other humans uh, beyond your own immediate family or, or even your extended family, it does become just a bit limiting. That contributes to the little thing that starts eating away at you inside about, well, what are you doing with your life? Is this how you actually want to be living? And I think a lot of people on the mainland who find themselves in that sort of nine to five grind or even just working full time and raising a family, paying a mortgage, all of the things that Australians sort of hold dear and it's just not enough for some people. You know, that's just living to, you know, pay bills and that's not a life that I wanted to continue with. And so we had a, you know, we had a really deep conversation, my husband and I, about where we wanted to be. And we had still a couple of younger children with us and we were very mindful of picking them up out of, you know, city life and plonking them into a regional part of Tasmania. But we decided actually that we might just be a little bit selfish and do what we want to do for ourselves. Because at the end of the day, the kids grow up, they move away. You've really got to set your life up for what it's going to look like when it's just you. And so I really saw moving to Tasmania as a way of not only becoming involved with the community, but actually living a life in service to my community. And that was, I think, a really important um, milestone about how we interact with ourselves and doing that sort of deeper inner work, you know, in terms of our contribution. Different people have a different way of giving back to their community. It might be through environmental activism. It might be through volunteering. It might be through permaculture designing and teaching. You know, there are so many ways that we can all um, express our talents to the world and, and to give of ourselves. But I think... A lot of people, because of their economic constraints, really can't go and do what they feel called to do because they're just caught up in this, oh, God, I've got to go and earn money to pay this bill or put food on the table. And really, I want to be going off here and pursuing my passions and, um, you know, living this life that I feel that I want to be living. And that is a real tension for people. And I think that just giving ourselves permission to be vulnerable and put ourselves in a vulnerable situation. We had no family in Tasmania when we came here. It was very much, wow, are we going to go from the pan into the fire? 
but sometimes you've just got to have faith that it's actually going to work out. <laughs> and and it did. Totally blew us away and met, you know, more than our expectations about how life might be here. And it's enabled so many other opportunities to come up that we hadn't even for a moment considered were, were possible. You know, you've also got to move your thinking with that. It's not just about moving yourself physically to a new geographic location you actually have to move your mind and not so much focusing on the what can this place do for me it's about well what can I actually bring to this community and so that's what it was about for us it was never about um, oh let's go and escape all the worries of the mainland and climate change and all of that and move somewhere where it's just beautiful and we can grow food and sit around the campfire singing Kumbaya and life is going to be marvellous, you know. <laughs> it was very much, no, let's actually go and become a really important part of our community. And we've both managed to do that, my husband and I. And um, and the kids, kids are so resilient. They really are. They initially, you know, there was that adjustment period, but once they got through that, they were just thriving. The two younger ones in particular have often reflected and have said to us, we're so glad that you decided to take us kicking and screaming to Tasmania. <laughs> Sometimes what's hardest to bear at the time is uh, what's fondest to remember. In well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, the whole thing has just been wonderful. And you've certainly, you know, come a long way since you set on um, Tasmania, given, you know, the, it seems to be a very uh, strong connection that you do have with your local community and all the things that mm. um, you are involved in. Um, I, I remember when, we, when I first met you and we were talking, it, it was evident to me that um, a culture of community and a culture of care are very important to you. I was just wondering if you wanted to expand on that a little bit um, as to, you know, what community and care do mean for you. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, our human condition tells us that we want to be part of a harmonious community. Um, I guess it's an extended form of tribalism, you know. Um, we want to fit. We want to be part of a cohesive unit. We, we want to be able to share. We want to be able to be respectful to, to one another. We want for there to be a peaceful way to live. And I think that everybody wants to do that. Um, it's just that all of these other externalities stop us from doing that. For me, part of being involved with the community and in service to my community is about caring for others and that people care ethic of permaculture is very central to to all of that um, but it's it's also about not only expressing care for others but um, creating a community where there is a genuine reciprocity so there is a trust that is built over time and that you can be assured that if something were to go wrong for you that your community is going to be there to help you through when you invest in community community comes back it's that karma 
network, isn't it, very much? Even if you approach it on the basis of you just give with no expectation, I guess it's very much in a gift economy. Um, you know that you will be provided for and you know that there will be people there to support you in your time of need. There are lots and lots of examples of that that I have witnessed um, here in Tasmania where people just in instinctively come out and help. And that's the difference about living in a in a smaller community where people do connect really, um, I think, on a more profound level than they do in a normal suburban situation, say, on the mainland, where most people don't even know who their neighbours are. <laughs> That's one of the tragedies, I think, of um, suburbia and cities, that there's almost like this force field this uh, that disconnects you from your neighbours and so many people want to know their neighbours but there's this like veil that they think they can't um, go through. I, I'm, I'm interested in um, so so many times on PGAP, you know, we talk to, on, on the large, broader concerns of post-growth and degrowth and steady-state economies just wondering your thoughts on where you see the context of acting locally and building community, how that fits into the bigger picture of growing infinitely on a finite planet. And I, I, I know you're talking about the smaller communities and, um, you know, part of <laughs> the growth is to make everything bigger all the time and so smaller communities either die out or become cities and so where where does acting local fit into the picture of um, addressing some of these broader societal concerns? Mm, mm. I think for me um, we can only really um, affect change at the local level as an individual and if we have enough people as individuals trying to affect change at the local level, that invariably has to extrapolate back out to the bigger picture. And I think sometimes it's very easy to sort of go down the rabbit hole when we're considering the bigger picture stuff, where we sit in it. Uh, and if you're not careful, there's a real danger there of being swallowed up with it all. Um, and then you find yourself going off on tangents of sort of ecological grief and all these other, you know, really heavy burdens that come with trying to think about the, the, the big picture stuff and how it impacts not only on yourself, your family, your friends, your community, but the entire world. You can actually become quite paralysed, I think, in that state of concern Yes, I'm concerned with the big picture, but I think that for me, um, I can be um, have most impact at the local level, working with people around small changes, um, bringing people, you know, along the journey of, you know, what does living more sustainably look like? Small changes, meeting people where they're at, you know, not trying to overwhelm people. And this is why we have so many people who have the head in the sand around issues like climate change. It's it's too much. It's just too much for the brain to process. 
and people don't want to accept that this is a burden that they have to bear uh, because of decisions that have been made by other people. I like to just bring it back to the local level, keep it simple, work with my community to find ways that we can do better, where we can set up ways that we can be more resilient if we find ourselves, you know, in, in a difficult situation down the track, whether that's an economic collapse or who knows what's coming, uh, you've just got to be really careful about not letting yourself get burnt out and being totally consumed by the overwhelm factor. You know, I've been there on the edge and sort of, oh, you know, and you just want to scream and, you know, can't believe people are so stupid and, and all of that and they can't see it. But you also have to recognise that, well, people don't see things the way that I see things. And I've got to actually adjust the way that I think. For me, it's about just keeping it simple, doing what I can, where I can, with what I have. And if there are enough people like me doing that wherever they are in the world, then that has to contribute to the bigger picture. I really liked what you said about compromise and working with people who are in a different position and in a different um, you know, modality of, of, of thinking. It's, it, it's made me think about, you know, when um, I think it was a, the, the reseed or when Northwest Tasmania hosted a, a permaculture conference. Yes, Rightly that was worded. the Australian Permaculture Convergence, um, 13, yeah. From what I know of permaculture, there are a lot of different people with a lot of different ideas Reflecting on that conference and permaculture generally, um, what, what is at least one thing that you really kind of um, love about the permaculture movement? And I suppose um, what is one um, challenge or discomfort that you may have found with it or some of the ideas? Well, look, as with all movements, um, you've got different players and wherever you have humans there is always going to be conflict um, and permaculture is is sort of no exception <laughs> um, as a movement you know it's really getting some traction permaculture has moved a long way away from just being about gardening there are so many people you know permaculture practitioners out there now in the world um, that are all trying to affect change where they are in their little parts of the world. Um, they bring uh, their own ideas and perspectives to the work that they are doing, which are based around the ethics of permaculture, of earth care, people care and fair share. And that goes into you know, business, it goes into communities, social permaculture, also, you know, designing, working in through agriculture, regenerative culture. There are so many different interpretations coming into permaculture now. Even people looking at uh, designing systems uh, that reflect the, the, the principles and the ethics of permaculture, but normally you wouldn't associate with permaculture. And they might be things like, community currencies, alternative economics, you know, they're all starting to come into the fold. They've always been there 
in the domains of permaculture, but haven't really been, I guess, given the light that perhaps they should have had um, when the focus was all about how people are designing their gardens for food forests and those sorts of things. And I feel really um, quite buoyed about the impact that permaculture is starting to have uh, around the world. And of course, living here on the northwest coast of Tasmania, um, you know, where the founder Bill Mollison is from, you know, he was only um, growing up as a, a wee fella, only an hour and a half up the road from me. And there's something quite nice about that, that, you know, I find myself in this place where permaculture sort of was born. And, and that sort of informs a lot of the work that I do, even on a personal level. It's just really pleasing to see permaculture going ahead. And as an Indigenous woman, of course, where that intersects with permaculture um, is really about the ethics of permaculture. Both Bill Molson and David Holmgren have spoken of the time that they both spent with Indigenous people while they were developing the concept of permaculture. And both have acknowledged their involvement with Indigenous people, uh, not only in Tasmania but around the world, that have helped to inform you know, what permaculture was to become. To be part of the permaculture movement is really a reflection of my cultural ethics around caring for the earth and caring for people and sharing the abundance. Look, everyone has their own unique way of, of doing things and we have to respect that people have different ideas and there needs to be space within the movement to accommodate different methodologies around how people do things. For me, at the end of the day, it's about where we need to be, you know, where we're going and where we need to bring people. And how we get there is really not something that I get consumed by. So many times in Tasmania when I've gone bushwalking or going to the nice places and then you read the placards of the history it's, and it's like how, how great the First Nations people uh, managed and were custodians of the land and then here come Europeans with their sheep and sheep and their cattle. One of the tension just even academically is um, when things in permaculture have been brought up um, which involve cattle and involve sheep and involve um, oak trees and um, you know, I remember in, in Melbourne, um, I just really wanted to grow Mernon because I just wanted to grow, grow something again that the, the European sheep had um, all, all guzzled and drew to near extinction. So um, the, I have this real concern of um, history repeating itself. Um, and, I, and I suppose I'm just supposedly coming from a historical observation of historical context of what I've read. Yeah, I'd, I'd welcome your observations on that, if, if, if you'd like. One of the great things about um, just thinking about your reference to Murnong, you know, and Bruce Pascoe's work comes to mind and um, he's doing, you know, some great stuff there, um, looking at how 
we can integrate uh, more, you know, traditional foods, uh, grasses and the like to replace, um, you know, I, I guess our traditional in the modern sense, um, you know, wheat crops and things like that. Well, there has to be space made for the return of more traditional crops in the landscape. And part of that is having areas returned to their natural habitat and, you know, natives and so on and so forth. Through sort of conventional agriculture, we've gone so far down the track, it's very difficult to come back. But where, where I see some positive movement is around the incorporation of other types of agriculture within permaculture, so regenerative agriculture, syntropic you know, farming, these sorts of things, they all uh, go to a place that take us into more natural ways of farming rather than monoculture, traditional farming methods. We talked earlier about everyone you know, having a different methodology by which to get to where we need to be. And all of those different methods of farming take us on that journey. But so long as we get to the end and we're, you know, helping nature to replenish and helping Mother Earth to recover from the abuse that humans have thrown, you know, her way. Um, a lot of people talk about how we save the planet and how we save the earth and how we do this and how we do that. In fact, it's not us that are doing anything. It, it is Mother Earth herself who is doing the fixing. And I always find that a really interesting conversation when I'm talking to people about what they consider to be broken and how they are going to set about fixing it. So this again brings up the disconnect in the worldviews between Western worldviews and Indigenous worldviews. The Indigenous worldview tells us that we are just like all the other living beings on this planet. We're just another expendable player. Some of the things that we do will impact um, perhaps a more rapid recovery, but we're actually not doing the work. Mother Earth is doing the work. She's doing the repairing. We're just observing the repairing taking place. So as an Indigenous woman, those sort of tensions come with me in the permaculture movement, um, and I just work with that. I don't sort of throw my hands up in the air and say, oh, this bloody permaculture thing, you know. <laughs> I, I just see that, you know, there are other people that are doing things differently. But at the end of the day, they all have the same care for Mother Earth as I have. And we all want to see all people in society um, thrive. And we all want to see people with enough food and, you know, the real issue is our economic system doesn't enable that for most people. And so if we as permaculture practitioners can
can work away in our little neck of the woods. Part of that is also connecting with Indigenous people and having those deeper conversations around how we work together, um, you know, with that common purpose and that common goal, um, rather than, oh, you know, your methodology sucks or, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know, you're doing it all wrong over there. We just need to respect that we have a different way of doing things. So um, we are sitting here with Mark Allen, who made this interview possible um, and is part of Town Planning Rebellion and Holistic Activism. Holistic Activism does touch on a few points, many points, um, that below the challenges of the economic system we are that there's um, fundamental psychological and spiritual um, and communal changes that we need to make. Um, some of those including accepting where we are now, finding points of connections with others rather than points of conflict, and I guess spending time to be outside of language. Um, it's, um, I, I recall seeing an Alan Watts video where he's in the middle of the field saying, I've spent so many, so much time with environmentalists. Oh, we're going to save the planet and, um, and this is what we're going to do. And he's like, no, no, it's because we keep trying to do that's the problem. And it's, it's a very broad, open-ended question, but in this movement towards change, where do you see, I suppose, um, spirituality or at least adjusting our psychology <laughs> falling mm. into place? Spirituality is a, is a deeply personal thing and everyone um, has their own version of um, spirituality which, you know, can either be informed by, you know, education, you know, what family you're born into, um, cultural uh, understandings and uh, upbringings. Um, it's a it's a really interesting place. I guess I can only talk talk to my own um, spiritual connection with place, and I do feel very strongly that the way that we interact with Mother Earth informs how we respond or not to her well-being. If we are better connected. Uh, with Mother Earth, then I think you just cannot uh, not care for her and what's happening with her um, and what humans are doing to her in terms of, you know, the destructive and extractive practices. So I think that spiritual aspect uh, speaks to your heart connection with Mother Earth, when you're looking at the landscape, we all need to get better at seeing the landscape, not just through our eyes, but with all of our senses. And most importantly, being able to see what's happening in our landscape with our hearts. And so how you arrive to that point through your own spiritual connection is entirely a matter for you. That is a fundamental aspect of how we change 
the mainstream um, thought around how we're interacting with Mother Earth. We really do need to get better at opening our, our hearts um, to connecting because it's it's at that heart level, I think, where the penny is going to drop for people. And, and I don't care whether you're an Indigenous person, a non-Indigenous person, it doesn't matter. As a human being, if you can find a heart connection to your landscape, no matter where it is in the world, then by virtue of that connection, you then take on board a reference for Mother Earth. Yeah, I spoke to Anne Polina from Matawara Fitzroy Council who said almost those entirely exact words. Yeah, almost word for word. It's just incredible. Mm. It's incredible. And uh, every time I hear it, there's something that just seems to reverberate mm. Mm. <laughs> um, more. So I think the thing is that it, it, it touches your soul mm. because it speaks to your heart, not your head. And, and that's where we all have that commonality. It's in the heart. The problem is what's in the head. <laughs> <laughs> so, so many. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what's said mm. in Buddhism, in um, so many of the mm. other philosophies and religions. Um, mm. You know, one of the things that's often addressed in this um, um, podcast is challenging the concept that um, bigger is better than better. Um, and so, you know, with, with so much talk about how we can make our um, cities bigger whilst not impacting the, the environment, I was just wanting to get your perspective on um, whether there's still a place for um, smaller communities and championing smaller communities uh, within this conversation. Hmm. Well, I think in terms of connectivity, um People just work better in smaller groups, has been my experience, because it does allow for um, diversity in terms of opinions, but it doesn't get so big that it becomes unruly. And I think that's one of the challenges with bigger cities. Um, it's not just about how many people you can squeeze into the space, it's about how the space more broadly operates. And does it actually lend itself to having a cohesive community? And so a lot of that would be, you know, speak directly to the design of the city and how it functions in terms of the interactions between the built infrastructure and the people who live there. And there needs to be, I think, um, an integration of more holistic thinking in town planning when approaching what we're going to build because town planning, as far as I'm aware, uh, only focus on exactly that, town planning. There's not enough emphasis put on how people are actually living within the built infrastructure um, and what do they actually need to live 
local government has a really strong role to play here. I don't think at the federal and the state level that there should be any conversation, really, um, because it's beyond their capacity to manage. It has to be managed at the local level. And I think councils need to get better at how they plan for growth within their cities, but not at the expense of the surrounding environment. Now, whether that means that there needs to be higher density, medium density living, whether they need to go back to the drawing board and actually look at how these, you know, housing stock look. Do we want to see every city or suburb in Australia with a McMansion on it? No, we probably don't because that doesn't um, speak to integrated holistic living for its citizens. Um, we need to look at how people can live together in smaller units. You know, we all don't need to have a mansion. People are happy to live in smaller apartments and what have you that reflect how they want to live. I think this whole idea of just keep going out and out and out and out is just totally crazy because there's no consideration for where, where does that growth actually finish? Like at what point in development do we say enough is enough? We've actually taken over so much of the land. Where do we say there's the limit? We've hit the limit. And whether that's economically, whether we're talking about Kate Roweth's work with, you know, breaching planetary boundaries economically, the same applies in this context. Where do we draw the line in the sand and say, right, beyond there is for all the wild things. We need to respect that as humans, we actually have to bring ourselves back in and live within our means. And stop expecting the planet to support our, our hunger and our greed for continuous growth all of the time. Those are the sorts of conversations that local government need to be having. And also even looking at how we change the type of housing. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never seen a new housing development that's centred around sort of a communal living, eco-village type situation, even a situation that um, is created for the incorporation of multi-generational living. Yeah, I think just the way we approach town planning generally is uh, very limiting in terms of the possibilities. And I think we do need to take a more holistic view, uh, not just with town planning, but with growth more broadly. Um, we can't continue down that trajectory. It's just not sustainable. Especially when the built world is now ways more than the biomass. So I think that's a good point to stop personally. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Open to other yeah. ideas. But I mean, it's even, you know, you look at development and, you know, people want to put, I mean, here in Tasmania, there's a big issue around a cable car being proposed for Kunanyi, Mount Wellington in Hobart. And uh, again, at what point do you say, you know, we've actually put up enough structures in the natural environment and we actually just have to live with what we've got. 
you know. We can't just keep defacing um, all of these natural treasures, culturally sensitive treasures, uh, because some developer wants to make a million bucks out of it. It just, it's beyond madness, beyond madness. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Tanya, thank you so much for your time and thank you for taking um, an hour, almost an hour and a half from um, community work to mm. speak with us on PGAP. It was an utter pleasure for me. Um, and a pleasure for me. Oh, that's a relief. And thank you so much for your time and the opportunity to, yeah, have some lovely reflections. When I found her, she was lying in a field of forget-me-nots Beneath the sky of apple trees I watched her chest rise and fall with every heavy breath of grief She told me her mother loved her laughter And she only had time for honesty I said, you know, there's a lot of hurt in you And there always will be Let the wind Carry her voice to you while she sings Oh, she sings Singing when I die I'll live on in your smile But for years I'll be right there in your laughter The sky was crying when she found Rivers run away. I said I'm not strong enough to lose you. Yeah. You're getting weaker every day. My mother is a mountain. A bit of her in me, I will rest easy. Let the wind carry her voice to you while she sings. Oh, 
what she sings Singing Listening to Post Growth Australia podcasts. Michael Bayless is my name, podcast hosting is my game, and infinite growth on a finite planet is evidently my kryptonite. You've just heard the interview with Tanya Brooks, followed by the song My Mother the Mountain by Claire Ann Taylor. This episode was made with the kind support of Sustainable Population Australia, as well as Holistic Activism and Town Planning Rebellion. Did you love or hate the episode? Don't be shy, let your feelings fly. You can let your opinions known by the following. Reviewing PGAP on your favourite podcast platform that lets you rate and review. Apple Podcasts is one I always check. PGAP currently enjoys nine five-star ratings. Would you be like to be number 10 and hold the power to lower the average rating? Uh, you can do all that and more by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can also contact PGAP using the contact form on the website if you have any suggestions, ideas or feedback. For the next interview of PGAP, I look forward to sharing several more interviews with amazing and inspiring people for the Tasmanian Perspective Special. Until then, until then. <laughs>